You remember that chapter 2 has given us a, a bit of a sweeping overview, a lens through which to view the rest of the book, uh, showing the rebellion of God's people and the, the kinds of conflicts they're going to have, that the, the presence of Canaanite peoples is going to be something that is seen throughout the book. And chapter 2 ends with the, the proclamation that God is, is testing Israel with the presence of other people among them, and he's no longer going to help them drive the people out. Rather, uh, God is going to keep the Canaanite peoples in their midst as a test of Israel's faithfulness. So that's where we uh, pick up chapter 3. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. Let us give our attention unto its reading. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the, to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Levo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for forty years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Girah, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tributes to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. 
Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Serah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him, uh, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I told you that uh, we would get into some real excitement here in the book of Judges. So it is before us today. Let's consider this passage of scripture together. At the end of last week's sermon, uh, we talked about one of the main themes of the book of Judges, that we are saved by the grace of God alone. It's God's grace which saves us. It intrudes into our lives. It It doesn't ask for permission. Grace comes and it saves. And it saves regardless of human will or human choice. That's what God's grace does. We spoke of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who lived his life in in many uh, sinful ways before he came to an awakening to his Lord. He spent the rest of his days ministering in the church, but of course, had that great quote that we shared at the end of last week, I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I want to be, I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, don't you think that John Newton, thinking back to a previous era of his life, caught in sin and patterns of sin, the slave trade, and all kinds of other sins, don't you think that he would look back in his life and be ashamed at certain points? Thinking about all that he came from, wouldn't he be ashamed of the kinds of things that he had done? Yes, of course. Of course he would have been. And of course all of us, we may, we may say that we, we try to live life with no regrets, but if we really look back and examine our own lives... All kinds of things which make us ashamed at certain points of self-reflection. But Newton must have reminded himself of this, and it's something that we ought to remind ourselves of as well. If God had not reached down into the filth of my life, if God had not reached down into the messiness and the muck of my sin and my wickedness, 
I never would have experienced the saving grace of God. If God's grace only came to the squeaky clean, to those with sanitized lives and life circumstances, uh, I never would have come to know the grace of Christ. So that's what this account ultimately reminds us of. God's grace enters into the messiness of human sin to save sinners. And human history shows us that when God saves sinners by his grace, they are to stand in awe of him. So first, let's look at the first half of this chapter, which speaks of the testing of Israel and then uh, the deliverer of Othniel. So we read about this testing of, of God. That God is testing the Israelites with the presence of these Canaanite peoples. We read that and the natural way that we tend to take it is God is wanting to find out what the Israelites are made of. That's why he tests them, to, to find out what they're made of. And that, that's, that's not the right way to understand this. God knows all. He sees all. He has decreed all. He knows what has happened. He knows the presence, uh, what's present in the Israelites' hearts. He knows what's to come. He knows all things. This is a way for Israel to see their own hearts. It will expose to them what is really uh, present in their own, in the depths of their own hearts. Have any of you ever said, I don't know what I would do in such and such a situation. If I were faced with this set of circumstances, I don't know how I would react. We say that because it's true. We, we don't know the future and we worry about what, really, what we're really made of down in the depths of our hearts. Living in a, a country where we're, we're free to worship, uh, we, we sometimes worry what would, what would our hearts react like if we actually were faced with real uh, dangerous persecution. Christians, of course, were persecuted in various ways. We ought to be persecuted in our own lives as we take a stand for truth and as we experience a life that uh, stays away from certain things that this world has to offer. And we may be ostracized or criticized for that, but if we were really faced with dangerous, life-threatening persecution, gun-to-the-head type of stuff, what would we say? And what we can say is, is that God in his sovereignty, will make sure that all of our lives reveal the true nature of our faith. There will be circumstances in all of our lives that show us what, and show others around us what we are really made of. Our faith is often revealed more by how we live than simply by what we claim. Many people may claim uh, to have faith in Christ, but the true nature of faith is often revealed through our lives. So it's not about God needing to find out what's within the Israelites. It's a way to show and to expose the true nature of their hearts. You may think of a wise professor who, who basically knows the people in his class, the students in his class who know the material and have a good handle on it, and the students who don't. So he writes a test, he writes an exam, and it all comes back, it's, and it, nothing surprises him. Right? He, he knows who knew the material, and he knows who didn't know the material, but it's a way to show the students that, yes, they are grasping the material, and other ones who do need to work on it. Right? That's not a perfect illustration, but something like the way you need to think about uh, the testing of the Israelites. And what do we see except complete failure? 
There's a complete failure in all that they do in their living in the promised land. They fail to eradicate the Canaanite peoples that God has told them. Drive them out. Show them no mercy. Eliminate them uh, from top to bottom. But they dwell among the Canaanites. One interesting thing that we'll see later on in the book of Judges in the account of Samson is that Samson is betrayed by his own people because he disrupts uh, peaceful relations with the Philistines. So uh, the Israelites desire to just sort of remain friendly with this other people group and because of that they will betray their own people. It's those kinds of things that we see in the book of Judges. The second uh, F that they receive in their testing is the intermarrying with the Canaanites. We need not feel uncomfortable about this in today's context. This is not uh, xenophobia or anything like that. Many people might say that this is evidence of the Old Testament's primitive worldview and ethical standards. But God has specific reasons for wanting his people to maintain an ethnic purity. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. The first reason is moral. Looking into the promised land, he's saying these peoples are wicked. These are wicked people groups that you are going to be driving out from the promised land. And to dwell among wicked people will inevitably take its toll. And you'll see it happen again and again. One great example is Gideon, one of the great heroes of the book of Judges, who experiences great victories uh, for the Lord and for his people and shows the, the various ways that God's power is with his people. But he has a Shechemite concubine. And through that Shechemite concubine, uh, they have a son. And do you think that that son shows characteristics that are more like an Israelite or more like a Canaanite? Yeah, it's more like a Canaanite. In fact, that son is named Abimelech, which in Hebrew is, means my father is king, Avimelech, my father the king. And Gideon was never uh, proclaimed king of God's people, but he names his son that, and Abimelech becomes one of the most wicked figures in the entire book. Gilead has relations with a Canaanite prostitute, and through this prostitute, he fathers Jephthah, who is in almost every way a typical Canaanite, and we'll see one of the most tragic and shocking acts in all of biblical history through Jephthah. Beyond the moral issue is the issue of the covenant and the promise. God wants his people to maintain an ethnic purity because it must be a descendant of Abraham who becomes the Messiah to all the world, who becomes a blessing to all of the world. Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of Abraham. If the line of Abraham becomes completely indistinguishable from the rest of the world, then the promise that God made doesn't come true. So it's not some kind of xenophobic uh, normative command for us Today, It's about God's covenantal dealings with his people. And in that sense, it, uh, it makes perfect sense and we need not be uncomfortable with it. The last F that Israel receives, their failing grade, is through their idolatrous worship. They served the gods of the Canaanites. They made some kind of blend of Yahweh worship and Canaanite worship. It's sort of... It, 
unbelievable archaeological find that I read about this past week where there was an inscription that said Yahweh delivered his people with the help of a a Canaanite goddess. There's actually been archaeological discoveries that show there were these kinds of things being said. Yahweh saved us with the help of this Canaanite goddess like Asherah that we read about in in our accounts today. So it's an utter failure from top to bottom in the testing that God gives to them. Then in verses 7 through 11, we see a, a, a paradigm of the, the way Judges is going to go. It's a short account of Othniel, the first deliverer, and we're going to read about the Judges and the deliverers for uh, up until chapter 16. And in a very short few verses, five verses, we, sh- we see the rebellion of God's people, the oppression that they experience, the groaning uh, that they have under that oppression, and then God's deliverance. So we don't hear a lot about Othniel. We don't have a lot of details of his life here. We read about him a little bit in chapter one. He was the one who won Caleb's daughter for a wife, and then she makes, she makes sure to get the good land for their household. But we don't read a lot about him here. And what that does is it brings the activity, the saving, delivering activity of God front and center. To show us that ultimately what is Judges about as the narratives expand and there's all kinds of other components. We must never forget that saving, delivering is the work of God. So packed into just a few short verses, we see these kinds of phrases. The sons of, evil, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he sold them into the hands of other peoples. They cried out to the Lord, and he raises up for them a deliverer. These, this is the rhythm of the book of Judges. Rebellion, God's anger, the oppression, they groan, and he Delivers, And these are all packed together in Othniel. It shows us that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. And all throughout scripture that is impressed upon us. Who is the one who saves? God is. Who is the one in whom is our help? The Lord. Blessed is he who is God. It's the God of Jacob. Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In other words, Psalm 18 is saying, everything good about my life, every experience of protection, of blessing, of salvation, it is found in my God and in him alone. Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This is the language of scripture. So it's the centrality of God and salvation. That's what Othniel teaches to us. We also see that uh, we should note that their crying out isn't a repentant crying out. It's really a, a groaning under pain. It's not that they're humbling themselves before God and repenting of their ways, they're simply groaning out. And this shows that God is simply filled with compassion and pity for his people. It's not because of their repentant hearts or because of their humility that God is responding to that. No, it's God's grace intruding upon their lives. It also impresses upon us, not only does salvation belong to the Lord, but all of history belongs to the Lord. God is in control of history. 
If you pick up a, a, a secular history textbook, what you're going to read about is causes and effects. This human, uh, this human action created this effect or set of effects. It set all these things into motion. And we kind of read history as an unfolding of that, of causes and effects. But that is not the scripture's view of history. That is not the Christian view of history. We know that the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. All things are from him and to him and through him. So Judges teaches us to trust in the Lord. It's a clear call to trust in the God of history. It's a clear call to pray to the God of history. Behold what God has done. These are all the things that he has done by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. It causes us to trust in what God has given us in which he has invested his power. Where do we find the power of God? The word of God. Shouldn't we give ourselves to the things in which he has invested his power? The late R.C. Sproul said, The greatest weakness of the church today is that no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. That's where it is. Why does the church grow so prolifically in the, in the developing world? Because they don't have anything except the scriptures. And because of that, they're forced to lean on the power of the scriptures. And because of that, God's power is made known. So Othniel gives us a lens, a template to expect the other stories to fit into. And that brings us to the account of Ehud and Eglon. The first thing we should acknowledge is that this is an inspired story. It's in the scriptures. God, the Holy Spirit gave it to us and he gave it to us for our good. Many people feel embarrassed that this is in the Bible or they apologize for it or they ignore it altogether. If we do that, we miss a wonderful reminder about what God does. He saves us in the messiness of our afflictions. Note that verse 15 calls Ehud a deliverer, a savior, really is how you might translate that. This is not a treacherous murderer, but a savior, imperfect though he may be. He's a savior. God raised him up. God strengthened him. God gave him victory. But that does not mean that we cannot also see that this story uses humor and irony in ways that uh, are unlike most of what you would encounter in Scripture. It's a bit jolting uh, to read this story and to read this level of, of humor, irony, and other things. The most obvious thing woven throughout the story, of course, of course is Eglon's shape and appearance. His name is Eglon, which in the Hebrew evokes connections to two ideas, a, a bull or a calf and roundness. And so his very name is, is already cluing us in to the kind of character they're portraying. His fatness is also linked to when he is killed. He is, he's portrayed as a, a calf or a bull being led to the slaughter. This is a, this is a slaughtering of an animal. There's also a, a fatness or a dullness of mind, a, a sloth of who he is mentally. He's unable to, to see that danger is coming. We see that Ehud twice, he says, I have, I have a, a word for you from the Lord. But really, in the Hebrew, there's some double entendre there. What we, I, have, I have a thing for you. I have a matter for you from the Lord. And very clearly, the narrator is wanting us to think of that dagger that he has hidden on his right thigh. The dullness, 
the dim-wittedness and even the, the physical roundness may even be extended to his bodyguards and his soldiers. In verse 29, we read that uh, 10,000 Moabites are killed. They were strong and vigorous. Very interesting kind of neutral translation there. The words there are associated most often with fatty and rich foods. So it may be that the Israelites behind the back of the Moabites who had oppressed them had begun speaking of them as a dim-witted and out-of-shape people. This comes through in the telling of the account. In contrast to that dim-wittedness is Ehud, the savior that God raises up. He's a crafty lefty. He has a plan. He executes it perfectly in the midst of all of these knuckleheads from Moab. And he even escapes before they find out what has happened. For every wrong move that the Moabites make, Ehud makes a right one. He's like a a modern day secret agent carrying out a mission and escaping unscathed. And in all of this, God is glorified. For God has strengthened him. And God has raised him up. And God saves his people from a once powerful king who is reduced to something like the status of a slaughtered calf. That is how Eglon is portrayed. And so that helps explain the certain elements that are in the story. These are things that you would expect in an animal slaughter. These are the kinds of things you would expect in an animal slaughter. The the, the fat that closes in over the dagger. The smell that the bodyguards experience to the point we read of embarrassment. These are the ways that the story has been portrayed to us. And so this is a story that may embarrass some or gross out others. But there are a couple things we really need to remember and blessings that we can receive from this word. The first is the circumstances from which God can save. When God saves sinners, he doesn't go out and look for someone whose nose is squeaky clean or who has already made themselves pure. And we must rejoice for them. Sin has made our times chaotic. Sin has made our world ugly. And if God refused to reach down into the messiness of sinners' lives, into the muck and mire, who would ever be saved from their sin? No one. Let this story be a reminder that all of our lives have things that would make us blush. We've all thought, said, and done things that we hope no one will ever see. But God has seen them. God knows all. Nothing is hidden from him. You think of the worst thing you've ever done. Something that has produced in you shame over the years. You look back, you're ashamed of that moment where you slipped up or whatever. A pattern of sin perhaps. Perhaps years spent in a pattern of sin. God knew about that and he still sent Jesus to die for you and for that sin. It ought to make you bubble over with gratitude. It ought to make you stand in awe at the grace and the mercy of God. That leads us to see another way in which this story ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. Because in a sense, there's a a humor woven throughout this story that belittles the Moabites here. 
And it becomes a great irony for the Israelites. It, it causes you to be filled with disdain for Eglon and his people. To be disgusted at them with their dim-wittedness and their sloth. And how they could have set themselves up for this kind of defeat. They seem completely incompetent from beginning to end. Look at them. And it causes you to be filled with disgust. But the author forces Israel to realize that this incompetent people is something like the peoples that the Israelites continually are running after. Look at the pagan people scattered throughout the land and you can't help yourselves falling over yourselves to live more and more like them. Yes, the story filled, would have filled them with disdain. And would have reminded them of the oppression of the Moabites. And in some way points to the glory of God in saving his people. But there is that bitter irony. That they have fallen into the patterns of pagan ways. One thing that the story particularly points out. And that stands out because uh, really if you're not careful you won't notice it. But it's repeated twice. And that's the idols at Gilgal. If you know the book of Joshua, you know that this was a sacred place for Israelite worship. But here it's mentioned really only in passing. There are idols that are existing there. There are idols that are at Gilgal stated just as a matter of fact. And the sad thing is that even though Ehud is a great savior who freed God's people from the tyranny of an overweight dimwit, he did not tear down the idols at Gilgal. He could not turn the battle inward. So his left-handed heroics bring down Eglon, the tyrant. But he could not conquer the tyrant of sin. It's only Jesus Christ who does that. He's the one. He's the savior who takes the battle inward and who turns the battle inward. He is not a savior from Eglon. He is a savior from our sin. He frees us from the power of sin by his cross and by his spirit that he gives to us. He's freed us from the tyranny of the devil. We are said that in Christ we no longer live under the reign of sin. It's absolutely crystal clear in scripture. Just as truly as God's people were no longer under the reign of Eglon after he was slain, after he lies dead on the floor, he was gone. His reign was over. And sin is dead to us, and we are dead to sin. God's word says that it is so. So ask yourself, why do you still live as though sin reigns over you? How absurd would it be for Israel to continue uh, going on paying tribute to Eglon? And as as a proper tyrant and oppressor, Uh, He demanded from them probably the very best of their crops, the very best that they had. So Ehud is bringing him tribute. There probably was all, just imagine the the vast amount of goods that Eglon demanded from them. And even think about his own lifestyle and the kinds of things he probably hoarded unto himself. How absurd would it have been for Israel to go on paying tribute to Eglon? So too. How absurd is it that we pay tribute to sin and pay homage to Satan when sin is a slain foe and Satan is bound awaiting his sentencing. Jesus Christ comes not as a left-handed warrior, 
but as a hand-pierced warrior to free us from the condemnation and power of sin. But we live like it's not true. We live like sin has not been conquered. We live like sin still reigns over us. And what does it become, brothers and sisters? It becomes God's word against ours. Who will we, whom will we believe? Ourselves or God? God's word says, sin no longer reigns over you. May we live then in light of what our conquering king and savior has done. He went into sin's castle. He gave sin a death blow. He left it for dead. Sin's ally, death, comes after Jesus Christ, and death could have no hold on him either. Sin lies dead because of Jesus Christ in its filthy, stinking throne room. It's dead. It's gone. So may we live like it is true. Nothing truer has ever been said. Nothing truer has ever been said than because of Jesus Christ, we are dead to sin. The question, brothers and sisters, is... Do you believe it? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask uh, that you would lead us through life by the light of your word. That we would live in the grace of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Ever seeking to honor you with our lives. We give you all praise, thanks, adoration. And ask uh, that you as we consider uh, this passage of scripture, that you would um, bring life to our souls and nourish us through it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.